Hey, it's Kyle Meredith, host of the Kyle Meredith with podcast, presented by WFPK at WFPK.org and the Consequence Podcast Network. It's a series that puts the spotlight on iconic musicians and actors, inviting them to drop by and talk about their latest projects, whether it's albums, TV shows, films, or beyond. I'm going to say something I don't want to say. Here it goes. Without Spinal Tap, there is no Tenacious D. Whoa. <laughs> Man. We get great stories and the biggest scoops from people like Garbage's Shirley Manson, the 1975's Maddie Healy, Jack Black and Kyle Gass of Tenacious D, Maya Hawk, Kiefer Sutherland, and everyone in between. New episodes arrive every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, so it's a great way to keep up with your favorite artists and discover some new ones. You can find Kyle Meredith with on the Consequence Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. Hi, Matthew. Hey there, how's it going? I'm doing okay. Gosh, how long has it been? I guess we haven't talked since, what, the trailer? I guess not. Wow, sorry. Life's been pretty crazy, you know? Don't worry about it. I've actually been pretty busy myself. Speaking of the trailer, I guess this is probably a good time to mention that some of this isn't going to make a lot of sense if you haven't been following this podcast from the start, including the trailer, which is... Sort of a mini-episode of its own. So maybe save this one until you're caught up. Noted. So what's on your mind? Okay, so as you know, in every episode of this podcast, the secret rules that I'm following point me towards a specific musical recording that I have to cover. Right. Now, so far, the albums that the rules have been surfacing for me have fallen into one of two categories. On the one hand... Some of them are fairly well-known albums that I, nonetheless, feel I can bring some sort of new perspective to. Like the Roxy Music albums, for example. And on the other hand, some of them are fairly obscure, and it's interesting in those cases to just hear the stories of those records, because it might not be familiar. Like Captain Lockheed, or the Portsmouth Sinfonia, or, you know, you've been listening. Uh Uh-huh. But for this episode, the album I have to find something to say about doesn't fall into either of those baskets. It's Fear, by John Cale. It's really a cult classic. There are a lot of John Cale fans out there, I know. And this is one of his best-regarded albums. But I'm not sure I have anything new to say about it. So why don't you just skip it? Because there are rules. And I said I would follow them, and skipping an album would be against the rules. Okay, fine. So what I'm hoping to do is just talk about this album for a bit, you and me. Just for this one episode, we'll turn Ghost Echoes into a casual, breezy chat podcast. There might be an audience for that. Well, I hope so. And maybe by the end of this conversation, we'll stumble on something interesting. Let's keep it low stakes. Let's not expect any grand revelations of ourselves. But we might come across a few points here and there that help us hear this album a little differently. Just a little. Sounds good. Okay, glad you're on board. Maybe we could start with you giving us a little context for this album. That I can do. (laughs) 
So John Cale is a Welsh singer-songwriter, composer, violist, pianist, bassist, and so forth. He's probably best known as the co-founder of a little group called the Velvet Underground. Heard of them. Right. So Lou Reed was the band's main songwriter, but Cale contributed enormously, I think, to the way the band approached Reed's songs in performance. But before he was ever involved in a rock band, Cale was involved with New York City's modern classical community, for lack of a better term. He performed with a musician with whom he very nearly shares a name, John Cage, Uh the leading light of the American avant-garde. And Cale was also a member of the Theater of Eternal Music, a group led by the drone pioneer Lamont Young. This is a fascinating group. Young would plan out performances where a group of musicians would hold notes for enormously long periods, and the compositions were really more improvisations, all happening within a set of musical, you might say, laws that Young had come up with. I see what you are doing here. One of the reasons why I think this background is so important is this sort of experimental composition really factors into how John Cale spent the first few years of his life after the Velvet Underground. He parted ways with that group because of creative differences with Lou Reed. And two out of the next four albums that he made after that break are art music releases. Again, because there's no good term for this sort of thing. I read somewhere that the Academy in Peril, his second solo album, was the first quote-unquote classical album released by his record label, Reprise, and, in fact, the first classical release on any subsidiary of Warner Brothers Records. Is that a big deal? I don't know. I think so. Okay. And in 1971, Cale collaborated with the minimalist composer Terry Riley on a record called The Church of Anthrax. Great title, right? Terry Riley is up there with Steve Reich and Philip Glass in terms of the best-known composers from the minimalist movement, this sort of repetitive, pattern-based music based on gradual changes. And John Cale was in a position where he could work with a person like that. I think the album they made together is a hidden gem of experimental music. Agreed. So taking all this into account, Cale's serious musician cred was pretty substantial at this point had he wanted to go in that direction. But there's another side of his output that's maybe more germane to the album we are ostensibly here to talk about. Ha ha, ostensibly. After Cale left the Velvets, he took up songwriting. You know, as droney and jammy and experimental as the Velvet Underground could get, Songwriting was still at the root of what they did, and John Cale wasn't responsible for that. That was Lou Reed's territory. And by the time the first Velvet Underground album came out, Reed was already kind of a master songwriter. His last job had been writing songs for other artists as a house songwriter at a record label, so he had a good handle on the mechanics of what made a good pop song. Plus, he'd been writing songs for himself since he was a kid, so, you know, he knew what he was doing. 
John Cale didn't have all that practice with songwriting. He had the composition chops, and he could think through arrangements, and he could improvise. But songwriting was kind of new for him, and so he did his learning in public, sort of. Starting on his first solo album, which was released before the Academy in Peril. Sorry, I'm jumping around in time here. It's fine, I'm following. That first album was called Vintage Violence. Hooked up on a fishing line. Vintage Violence is a perfectly serviceable, not especially memorable pop record. And I don't think Kale would object to that characterization. On the album cover, Kale is wearing a glass mask that obscures his features. And he's written that the music on the album is kind of like that too. You can't really see the personality coming through. Which makes his next album of pop songs, his third solo album altogether, just that much more extraordinary. The album Paris 1919 is sheer elegance from start to finish. It's a symphonic pop album in the tradition of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, or Pet Sounds, or the early Bee Gees records, or even Broadway cast albums. It is well-behaved, restrained, neoclassical, not experimental sounding in the slightest, and completely unlike anything else that Kale had done up to that point. really like this album. Me too. And it's really interesting to think about as an album made by somebody who was still really fairly new to writing songs. Some of the lyrics on Paris 1919 are simple, almost to the point of naivete. And others are so complex and elusive that the details don't really build on each other at all, and the whole thing kind of fails to convey any meaning whatsoever. I guess what I'm saying here is that on this album... John Cale has mastered pop songwriting. And that, at long last, leads us to fear. I compared Paris 1919 with Sgt. Pepper and Pet Sounds, and like those albums, it was written for the studio. Kale hadn't been regularly performing live since he was in the Velvet Underground, but then he got a new contract with Island Records, and it changed all of that. Now he'd have to get on board the rock and roll merry-go-round of making an album and touring, making an album and touring, making an album and touring, and as grueling as that could be, apparently it wasn't all bad for Kale. Playing night after night with the same musicians does provide opportunities for growth, You can't hear that growth on fear, he hadn't been on tour yet, but you get the sense that he knows it's coming. If these songs were going to work at a live show, they just couldn't rely on pretty surfaces and orchestrations, not like Paris 1919 had. And so we hear mainly piano, guitars, bass, and drums. We hear a bit of orchestra here and there, but it isn't at the center of the album the way it was on Paris 1919. 
But the starkest difference between Fear and Paris 1919 lives, I think, on two particular tracks. One of them is Gun. This track is dominated by a long, exploratory guitar solo from Roxy Music's Phil Manzanera. It's rough and untethered, and it would come, I imagine, as a bit of a shock if the only thing you'd heard from Kale was his previous album of manicured symphonic pop. And the other extreme point of contrast is the song the album takes its title from, Fear is a Man's Best Friend. It starts innocuously enough, but the further into the song you get, the more clear it becomes that something's off. Kale barely sings the title line at all. He almost sneers it. And the high note at the end of the chorus troubles him a little more each time he gets there. And by the end of the song, it isn't just Kale that's unraveling, it's everything. Fear is a Man's Best Friend is a pop song that devolves into a spasm. In a sense, you could say it's Paris 1919 and the Academy in Peril in the course of the same song. And that's not entirely a bad way to sum up this whole album. It's the point where the two main thrusts of Kale's solo career, the experimental side and the songwriting side, finally meet. Do you know what you're describing? What am I describing? The Velvet Underground. Oh, that's a good point. Actually, Kale has said before that this album was his attempt to do what Lou Reed had refused to keep doing when they were in a band together. After Kale left the Velvets, they steered pretty hard into just straight songwriting without as much of the jamming and stretching out that Kale brought to the table. So you could look at Fear as a belated, alternate, third Velvet Underground album. And if that's what Kale was working towards, it's even easier to see his songwriting records, Vintage Violence and Paris 1919, as exercises. Because if he was explicitly looking to continue the Velvet Underground's work, he had a Lou Reed-shaped hole to fill, right? And nobody to fill it but himself. This conversation had a point after all. Yeah, look at us, we made it work. We should do it again sometime. Maybe we could talk about... Oh, no, 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 no. We're not talking about that. Why not? Because it's against the secret rules. Oh, okay. Is it me, or did the atmosphere just get weird? Hey, it was great to talk with you, alright? Oh. I'll check in with you again soon. Okay. Okay. I'm Matthew Parsons. Next time on Ghost Echoes... The Lord God Omnipotent reigneth.
Consequence Podcast Network.